Welcome to another installment of the Whitaker Myers Wealth Managers What We Learned in the Markets This Week video. We aim to provide you, our valued clients, with a brief video giving you information that is helpful to your understanding of the markets from a biblical worldview with no financial agenda, which makes us uniquely different from the news media in America. This video is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make investment decisions. The clients of Whitaker Myers Wealth Managers may maintain positions in the securities discussed in today's video. All opinions discussed are solely those of John Mark Young and not those of Whitaker Myers Wealth Managers. Hi, I'm John Mark Young, and welcome back to What We Learned in the Markets This Week. A quote I often give clients and prospects alike is that 53% of the market's days are positive, they have a up arrow happening, and 47% of the days are negative, they have a down arrow. Now, when you have an 80% win rate annually, January to December, that means that many of those days that are negative, those 47% of days that are negative, just don't mean anything because the market is going to rip back eight out of 10 years on average. Now, take a look at this chart right here. This shows the average annual return in the markets every single year going back 30 years. The red dot you see is in, in the negative column. That shows you how much of a drawdown you had in any of those given years. So this year, a 20-ish percent return for the growth and growth and income categories combined, yet still we had a 10% drawdown this year. In 2021, for example, as you can see, there was a 29% return for the growth and growth and income sectors, yet a only a 5% drawdown. That year was a pretty good year in terms of drawdowns. Uh, but then right before that, 2020, we had an 18% return with a 34% drawdown, a larger drawdown than the actual return that year, still a positive return. The point here is you can't time this stuff up and you can't freak out about these drawdowns that will inevitably happen because they're not going to mean anything most of the time. Why do I even bring this up? Because anyone that sold out during the 10% drawdown this year, which just happened in, 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 at the end of October, should, have, should be sadly frustrated with themselves. Uh, and because of mutual fund flows, we can actually see that many, many people actually did sell out hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars during that 10% drawdown. The amount of wealth that could be kept in Americans' hands if they just had someone, a financial advisor, a financial planner, giving them behavioral coaching advice, which Vanguard, by the way, says behavioral coaching, that adds a 1.5% to your annual performance because you're not chasing returns or chasing categories. Well, I bring all this up right now because we are in a period, by many Wall Street estimates, that throughout the year end, the market's got a lot of momentum pushing it forward. Corporate earnings have come back strong in the third quarter. And seem to be shaping up well for the fourth quarter. The Fed President, Jerome Powell, last week, he said he thinks interest rates have hit restrictive levels, signaling that if data continues to confirm uh, that we are probably done with rate hikes for the rest of this year. And the consumer is getting re relief in things like mortgage rates uh, and lower inflation, all while getting the boom of having their cash earn 5% in many cases, which by the way, if your cash isn't earning 5%, you should talk to your financial planner or financial advisor about how to make that happen. Uh, there. So all that to say, it's shaping up to be a great time in the markets right now. There's going to be bad times, but it's a great time. Let's enjoy it. So let's talk about how the economy shaped up this week. Now, first, each week we review the Atlanta Fed's GDP Now model, which gives us a quick gauge into the economy and the current level of growth based on economic data as it's being released and fed through this Atlanta Fed's algorithm. Remember how last quarter, if you watch this video series on a regular basis, we had a record 
record-breaking 4.9% growth in the economy. It's just an outstanding number that if you would have been watching this video series, you would have been ready for. You would have known it was coming. Not Wall Street or not Fox Business or not the Cartoon Network, but the average Wall Street economist was saying maybe 3%. And the Atlanta Fed's GDP Now model was saying over 5%. Well, the number came in at 4.9 last quarter, and you were probably like, ha-ha, John Mark, the system you track to get economic growth was right. It was more right than Wall Street, but you were still a little too high. Well, praise be to God for revealing this great tool to us because the numbers were just revised last week. They, they come out, but then they revise them as data continues to get refined. And for the third quarter, uh, the result of the uh, revisions was... Uh, that there was greater level of fixed investments and state and local government spending was a little bit higher than originally thought. And so the number was revised from 4.9 to 5.2. Now, do you remember what the last estimate was before the number was released from the Atlanta Fed's GDP Now model? I do, because we keep all those charts, and it was 5.1%. So the Atlanta Fed's model was even more right than we thought. And Wall Street was still at 3%. They can't change their revisions or their estimates. Atlanta Fed at 5.1. The number ends, at least right now, at 5.2. All that to say, please don't tune on the, turn on the Cartoon Network, CNBC, or Fox Business, and be forced to listen to some old guy who has no pessimism left in his veins because he's mad that his life is nearly over and he doesn't have the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ in him. And so thus, everything's bad. That's what happens with all these old guys that get on CNBC. Everything's bad to them. Listen to someone who actually tries to listen to the data and not feelings, not emotions, uh, or, or not just trying to say something negative so it gets some airtime on the Cartoon Network. All that to say, where we were, where, where are we right now with GDP growth? Well, unfortunate for President Biden, he would have preferred that 5.2% print come in one year later than it actually came in, because it seems our economy is starting to slow down at this point. Not to recessionary numbers and not to, to levels that you would be totally worried about. But the number this week comes in at a down at 1.2 for the fourth quarter. Well, what we just talked about was third quarter. This is fourth quarter. After a skew of data was released from places like the U.S. Census Bureau and the Institute of Supply Management that gauges a lot of the growth in the manufacturing sector. With these current levels, we are right where Wall Street economists expect us to be for the fourth quarter. And there's still one month to go and even some data that will be released in 2024 that's going to affect this number. Uh, so while it's a, a dramatic cool down from last quarter, you know, 5.2 down to, down to, you know, in the 1% range, uh, which everyone, you know, in their right mind was expecting, we're not going to keep growing at 5%, uh, but it's not recessionary. Yeah. Now, the other thing I like to check is let's check on the 30-year mortgage rate, which has been climbing uh, down the mountain since reaching about 7.8 a few weeks ago. This week, the average on a 30-year mortgage is coming in at 7.22%. The lows of this year were around 6%. That, that happened in January and February this year. So not quite there yet. Still percent and a quarter above that. Um, but they seem to be working their way down. Now, as we check in on the U.S. labor market, we can see that the initial claims for unemployment insurance, those going on unemployment for the first time, came in at 218000 for the week. That number shows how many people are starting unemployment for the first time and that number is at a nice low rate, as you can see on your screen. Even this year, which has been a great year, it's at lows for the year, uh, which is good to see. However, one concerning number, after taking a dip down last week, which was encouraging, is the continuing claims. Those on unemployment insurance that stay on unemployment insurance, they jumped higher. So the back end of this number, meaning people getting off of unemployment insurance after they start, is slowing down. We're keeping them, we're keeping the front door narrow. We're not, we're not putting a ton of people on unemployment insurance, but we're not pushing the people out the back door 
back into the labor force. And thus the house might get too crowded. <laughs> now, the number is back to pre-pandemic levels, which remember, that was a pretty strong economy under President Trump. So nothing terrible here yet, but concerning, concerning that we, we keep climbing, the, those, those continuing claims continue to climb. We're going to continue to watch that number together and we'll see if it, it continues to keep going up. And finally, let's look at the markets this week using our four Dave Ramsey categories as our proxy. The S&P 500, which of course is our proxy for growth and growth in income, but only when taken together, that was a positive 0.77% this week. The Russell 2000, which tracks our smaller and mid-sized companies or aggressive growth in our Dave Ramsey vernacular, that had a phenomenal week, jumping 3.11%. And look at those numbers on Friday, just incredible. This category uh, that has been um, the, the least performing in 2023. Uh, it's exciting to see what's happening right now with it. So don't bail out on those aggressive growth funds. And if you haven't, congratulations, most of our clients haven't. Uh, and finally, the MSCI EFA, which tracks developed international stocks across the world, excluding the US, that was positive 0.85% for the week, coming in second place. So a rare week that growth and growth and income combined, which is our S&P 500, did not win the week. And now on to point number two, those that are worried about consumers spending too much money, much of those consumers using credit card debt to spend that money, got some good news this week when we received the consumer spending numbers. In the month of October, which is what was released this last week, uh, spending rose 0.2%, which was a slowdown from 0.7% last month. And the recent peak of this year, which happened in January, was 1.6% spending growth. This is probably partly to blame because student loan payments have now restarted, and that's taking a bite out of consumers' monthly cash flow, along with the income growth just has not been as strong lately. Our raises have not been as strong uh, lately. Additionally, we received the PCE numbers, PCE meaning personal consumption expenditures. Now remember, this is a vitally important number because it's what the Federal Reserve, who has the authority to raise interest rates up or down on us, uh, it's their preferred gauge on inflation. Because as opposed to CPI, consumer price index, the, the general gauge of inflation, that tracks the CPI number, that tracks a broad basket of goods. The PCE number tracks what consumers are actually buying. Who cares if a Maserati is increasing at 100% inflation if no one can afford those and thus aren't buying them? That, that really is a, like a, if a tree falls in a forest, does, and does it really even make a sound because nobody saw it, right? And as you can see on your screen, the year-over-year -year numbers show the lowest print yet since April of 2021, coming in at 3.01% on the regular number and 3.46% on the core number, which strips out the volatile food and energy prices. Now, the prices on goods things you and I buy decreased 0.3% in this number and prices for services, what people provide to us, increased 20 basis points in this report. What we want to continue to see is a number climb down to 2%. And if you look at the last six months and you annualize those numbers, you're getting right to that point. A very good stat to see and a reason why there is so much optimism right now around rates having reached their terminal level and starting to go down from here. Point number three, on December 18th of this year, in a few weeks, the S&P 500 will introduce three new members. Thus, to keep their name consistent, the S&P 500, they will correspondingly remove three names from the uh, S&P 500. Who's getting added? Well, I bet you've heard of this one, Uber Technologies. Uh, many of you are probably 
maybe even using their service right now as we speak while you're watching this driving to somewhere. Uh, they're, they're finally eligible for inclusion to the S&P 500 after two straight positive quarters of operating profits. Additionally, another company, Builders First Source, who is the nation's largest supplier of structural building products, and they do value-added components and, and provide services to new residential construction and home remodeling services in the U.S., they're being added to the S&P 500. And finally, the third one being added is Jubil, who engineers and builds some of the most innovative and complex energy storage uh, system products in, in the world. Now, Jubil is a key supplier for Apple, who, uh, for example... Uh, to turn this into one of our themes, uh, Whitaker Myers, for an international investing, they have a high focus on India right now because they manufacture some of the components for the AirPods in India. At this point, India is making iPhones and now they're making AirPods thanks to Jabil's investment in India. And, and now remember, the S&P 500 is inclusive of the top companies that are leaders within their industries and represent a gauge of the U.S. economy. A company is eligible for inclusion to the S&P 500 when they meet certain criteria, which includes a market capitalization of $14.5 billion, which means their share price times the number of shares outstanding, or said another way, one measure of a value of the company is, is their market capitalization. Th this, along with some other factors, will determine uh, is the company qualifying for the S&P 500? And while you're not ever able to see a full list of the S&P 500 without a subscription, you can typically get a good measure of what's in the S&P 500. Just pop open a mutual fund hood on, on an S&P 500 fund, or you could subscribe to the S&P 500 research unit, and that's when they give you that information. The addition of these companies can mean good things for their stock price into the future as it sets a basic level of buying for the stock. Uh, considering the large popularity of index investing at this point, so many people going into these index funds. Once the market knows this information, though, it already prices that in. It's an efficient market. So don't think you're going to be able to make money typically be, because of this uh, there. So interesting that those three companies got added and you can see the three companies that got removed all having a pretty bad year. Thus, they're getting the boot out of the S&P 500, the growth and growth and in income sectors. And finally, point number four, Charlie Munger, the world's most famous investing sidekick. He's the Robin to Berkshire Hathaway's Warren Buffett's Batman. He passed away this week. But before he passed away, very interestingly, he did a, an interview with CNBC's Becky Quick, which they aired this last Thursday. Now, one takeaway from me, especially as somebody that watches and follows Dave Ramsey, was, do you remember when Rachel Cruz wrote uh, the book? Of course, Rachel Cruz is Dave's daughter. She wrote the book, Love Your Life, Not Theirs. Well, Charlie, in this interview Thursday, gave his rationale for living in the same house in California for the last 30 years. And, and he's not alone in that. His investing partner, Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett bought his house in Omaha, Nebraska for $31,500 in 1958. And despite being worth north of $100 billion today, guess what? He still lives in that house today. Now, why? And why don't they have thousands of houses or hundreds of houses? They're multi-billionaires. What's the rationale for this? They talked about how many of their rich friends would build these mega mansions and they would end up being more stressed and less happy. Your house should provide utility. It doesn't need to be extravagant. It's expensive to own, maintain a mega mansion and doesn't do any good to have a house that, that is that large. This brings me back to the book, What the Happiest Retirees Know. And there was a level of leveling off of happiness when certain wealth was accumulated. Once you reach a point of enough wealth, wealth didn't provide any more happiness. If you didn't have any wealth, you were definitely less happy because of a lack of security it provides. And by the way, this is biblical. Some people are saying, oh, that's not true. That's not biblical. It is biblical. 
Okay? I'm not saying that money buys you happiness. That's not what I'm saying. But there's many of verses, including Proverbs 21, 20, which says, in the house of wise, precious treasure and oil are there. So don't tell me income inequality isn't, you know, uh, the, uh, the issue here either, because I'll point you to one of my clients who uh, has $2 million in her account and has only made $30,000 a year. A $30,000 a year job is a dime a dozen. Anyone can get those, regardless of education or experience or those sort of things. And if you make 30 grand, you should probably actually even look to improve that. But if you're content doing that, then you can build your life around those numbers. Charlie Munger was a billionaire and should have lived in the... And sh- lived in the biggest mega mansion in the world, but he lived in the same house. You don't need bigger and bigger and better all the time. We don't need that. I'm that's preaching myself here too. Talk about someone that was content. And to be honest, I don't know what his spiritual situation was. He lost a child to leukemia when that child was nine. And I don't know if that brought him to the Lord, but we can learn something about from Charlie Munger about his level of contentment. He ended the interview with another drawback of such a large house is it can ruin your kids. Charlie was known for giving advice like, don't have a lot of envy and don't overspend your income. Things that we hear the team at Ramsey Solutions preach to us on a regular basis. While we thank Charlie Munger for teaching us this solid financial advice and investing principles, um, our thoughts certainly go out to his family as they grieve the loss of this great titan of the investment industry, the man that changed Warren Buffett's way of investing, his way of thinking from the Benjamin Graham, just buy decent companies at a super low cost to buying quality companies at a reasonable cost. And yet then when people would give him credit for that, he would constantly deflect that credit uh, there. Do you think something has to do with his level of contentment with his finances and his lack of desire to receive praise and credit and and those sort of things. Again, I I don't know Charlie's uh, spiritual situation, but to me, this man is gleaming of wisdom. Not to say big houses and nice cars are bad things. I mean, I live in a nice house, what I would quantify as a nice house, at least. Not extravagant, but very nice. Uh, I drive what I would call a nice car, not extravagant, but, but a nice car. Those things aren't terrible in and of themselves, but we as Christians need to think about where our hope is. God owns it all. I'm going to come into this world or I'm going to leave this world as Charlie learned this week with the same thing I came into this world with, with, which is just my soul. That's it. That's all, all I get to enter and leave with. And so my thought process around money and stewarding it well for God, which means I do save and I do invest because I've been instructed to be a good steward and do those things. And that's part of being a good steward. So those are the things in and of themselves don't aren't bad. And that's why I think, why does the person that has half a million dollars end up, which by the way, there's many people that have less than half a million dollars that are very happy. But why does the person that half a million dollars, according to stats say, that is the person that reaches maximum happiness. Meaning the person with $2 billion is not any more happier than the person that has half a million dollars. Why I think that is, I think it's back to a biblical principle, which is to say they have been a good steward. They have created margin in their life financially. They have done what they've been asked to do financially, albeit there's many other things spiritually great commission-wise that we are called to do with money and without money uh, there. But those folks have done what they've been required to do to be a good steward 
of what God has blessed them with. And so thus, they have reached a level of contentment. Hopefully that we can learn something from Charlie Munger. We learned something from Warren Buffett. Both of these these guys, I, I think of them as LeBron James. Many people probably don't like him because of his political views, and I would disagree with his political views as well. But one thing I can respect LeBron James about is he's never been part of a issue. He's never been, he's never been, oh, look at that bad thing he did or anything like that. He's been, he's been the the thing that you could say from a sports perspective, you can look up to him and learn something from him. And Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett are the same things. In a very vain industry in the investment world, they have been people you can look up to and say they have a they have billions of dollars, yet they have a level of contentment and it shows. Didn't buy the 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 big cars, didn't buy the 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 massive houses, still eats Disney or not Disney, excuse me, Dairy Queen ice cream every morning as part of his breakfast routine. Warren Buffett does uh, there. So good things to learn. Again, don't want to be legalistic about money. Uh, Every person's situation is certainly different. It's our job to steward you, guide you, help you break the power of money, which is what giving does, by the way. Giving breaks the power of money, which is why we should be tremendous givers as Christians there and help you steward your assets well. That's what we're called to do. We're not perfect at it. We're learning just like you, which is why spiritual and biblical study is so important for your advisor, for yourself, why prayer is so important for all of us. We're praying for you. Would you pray for us that we continue to give you great advice and the Lord just continues to give us wisdom? James 5 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask for it. Let him ask for it humbly and it will be given to him. That's what we're asking for. We're asking for wisdom so we can give you great advice. So hopefully the four things in the market were helpful to you this week. If they were, would you do us a favor? You can do us a favor by hitting the like and subscribe button. The like button helps us push our content out to more people with YouTube and Google and Rumble's algorithms, as well as it it allows uh, the subscribe button allows you to get the content to yourself as quickly as possible, as quickly as we release it to you. As well as if you'd like to schedule a meeting with any of our financial coaches who help you in baby steps one, two, or three, or our financial planners who help you in baby steps four, five, and six, you can go to the link in the comment section of this video and schedule a meeting with them. Until next week, we'll look forward to seeing you then.